good to see you guys on this beautiful August morning, and uh, good to have you guys here as we are continuing in a series um, that we've actually started now a while ago that we've been calling a 90-day trek through the Bible. And if you've been with us, basically what we've been doing in this series is we've been taking a span of 90 days to overview the entire Bible. And, uh, and so we've been doing that. We're about in the middle, kind of close to the middle-ish of that, kind of going through this series together. And the reason we've been doing this, we, we said, is really because, uh, just quite simply, the Bible is really, really important. And so we've been saying, man, when you look at the significance of the Bible historically, um, you, you see that the Bible plays an instrumental part in our history. Um, there have been civilizations that have been built on the principles that are in um, this book. There have been people who have dedicated their lives, have given their lives, sacrificed their lives, lived for and died for um, this book. Uh, we see in history that there have been wars that have been fought on account of this book. And so it's a very significant book as it relates to our history. And not just to our history, but it's a significant book currently. And so today there are so many people, in fact, many of us who are in this room today, that would say that, man, we've built our lives and the principles uh, of what we find in this book, that our faith system, our belief system is sort of built on the things that the Bible teaches. And yet at the same time, while this book is so important and so significant, we said it's also one that's met with a lot of confusion, a lot of ambiguity. And so there's, there's a lot of questions about the Bible today. There's a lot of scrutiny about the Bible um, today. And so it's because of that we said, man, such an important book. Why don't we just take 90 days and let's just go through the whole thing. Let's just overview the entire Bible and let's just kind of talk about it um, kind of from a general perspective and talk about it in a broad sense. And so in this series, um, we've dealt with a lot of really basic stuff. And so, for example, at the beginning of the series, we started with one very basic and foundational question. If you guys were here, you might remember. We just started by asking the question, hey, what is the Bible? What is it? Right? So when you're holding a Bible, what are you holding? Uh, and where did this come from? And how did we get this? And how did it get passed down to us? And is it trustworthy? And so we spent the first whole week just talking about that, where we got the Bible and how we got the Bible that we have and what it is exactly. Then we asked another really basic question. We asked, man, what, it, that's, what is the Bible? But then we asked, what is the Bible about? And so if the Bible is 66 manuscripts that have been written over 1,500 years by over 40 different authors, which is what we found, we said, what is the thread that unites all of those books together? Right? So what is kind of the big story of the Bible? And we said, for our sake, we said, if you want to condense down what is the message of the Bible, what is the story of the Bible, we said in a nutshell, here's what it is. The Bible is God's rescue plan. That's what it is. If you want to know what you're reading, what it is you're holding, you are holding God's rescue plan. And the entire Bible, the thread that unites the whole thing from cover to cover, is that the Bible is basically not just an explanation of God's desire to rescue us, to save humanity, but it's also a comprehensive explanation of how God goes about that. And so we, we said that the Bible contains really sort of a, a thorough, exhaustive explanation of what it means that God has rescued us. And so we said that it, the Bible explains to us what we're saved from, the Bible explains to us what we're saved by, and the Bible explains to us what we're saved to. The Bible's God's rescue plan. It explains to us how thorough God is in his rescuing. So each week then in this series, what we've been doing is we've been talking under one of those different topics, what we're saved from, what we're saved by, and what we're saved to. We actually spent the last three weeks talking about what we're saved from. And I would just encourage you that if you missed the past three weeks or any of the weeks in this series and you want to catch up with that, you can go to our website if you want to. Um, you can either download the podcast and listen to that when you work out or on your drive to work or something, or you can watch it if you want to. If you're looking for some eye candy, I can, I can uh, give that to you. And, uh, and you can see that there and check that out if you want to. Okay. Uh, but today, what I want to do, the topic I want to introduce, I actually want to start talking about the heading, what we're saved by. So the Bible explains to us that we're saved, but explains to us what we're saved from 
It also explains to us what we're saved by. And today I want to talk about what we're saved by. And particularly, what I want to talk about today is that the Bible teaches us that we are saved by righteousness. Right? We're saved by righteousness. Now, if you guys have a program, you might notice on the program at the top of that in the notes page, it says saved by faith. And the reason that it's saved by righteousness and not saved by faith is because I actually changed it um, for the sake of our conversation. Now, righteousness is a weird word. If you're not a person who kind of grew up around the church, my guess is you're like, that's a churchy word. I don't even know what that really means. What does it mean? What is righteousness? Well, here it is in a nutshell. Righteousness is living rightly before God. That's what it is. It's living in obedience. It's living in the way that God desires you to live. It's living with faith. That's what righteousness is, right? And so what I want to talk about this morning is that we are saved by right living. We are saved by living the way that God desires to live. Now, I know as soon as I say that, there's some of you who are like, I so disagree with you. And I, in fact, I'll show you passages of the Bible that disagree with you. And let me just encourage you, all right, before you walk out on me, I want you to hear me all the way through because I think you'll see where I'm going with this. And if, at face value, it might not be what you see, what it seems. Okay, so saved by righteousness, what do I mean? Let me show you. Get your Bibles, Matthew 4. All right, grab, grab them with me. We're going to Matthew chapter 4. And uh, you guys can go ahead and flip there. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, shouldn't be a problem. We should have some for you um, in the chairs there in front of you. You can grab those, turn to page uh, 676 in those black Bibles and go ahead and do that. And I just also just say that if you don't have a Bible, if you're a guest with us, you don't own one, or you don't have like a new translation, just take one of ours. Make it a gift from us to you once you have a Bible. All right, so Matthew 4. As you guys are flipping to Matthew 4, let me tell you just a quick story. So uh, when I was in college, uh, well, it's right after college, in my mid-20s before I got married, um, I was part of a really tight-knit group of friends. And one of the friends that was in that group moved to uh, California, moved to Los Angeles. And so my one friend and I, probably my, my closest friend at that time, probably my best friend, decided that we were going to go out to Los Angeles and visit my buddy. And the problem was, at that stage, we didn't really have a whole lot of money. And so we had to figure out a budgeted way to get from Akron, Ohio to Los Angeles, California. So we went on the internet, tried to look up some, um, some round ticket, you know, airline tickets. Of course, that was way out of our price range, so we couldn't do that. Um, I didn't own a car at the time. I was living in Chicago, and so I didn't really need a car. And my buddy had a car, but it was not roadworthy. Like, you didn't want to go more than 20 miles in this thing. And so we're like, that ain't going to work. And so we're trying to figure out how we we're going to get there. And all of a sudden, we had this great idea. We said, hey what if we took a Greyhound from Akron to Los Angeles? And we said, that's a great idea. And so we went online and we, we looked for Greyhound tickets. And sure enough, we found these round trip Greyhound tickets from Akron, Ohio to Los Angeles, California for like dirt cheap. And we're like, this is it. This is what we're going to do. It's going to be so fun. It's going to be a road trip. This is going to be an adventure. I'm sure we're going to meet all kinds of neat people. And, uh, you know, we're going to get we get to see the landscape of, our, of the great United States. We get to see America. And we get to go across the whole thing to Los Angeles. It's going to be awesome. So we bought the tickets. We're all excited. Went to the Greyhound Station in downtown Akron. And we hopped on our bus. And we got on the bus. Man, we were so jacked up, you know. So we get, put our luggage in the little compartment underneath the bus. And we got up in our seats. And we're like, this is awesome. And a road trip. And we were just really pumped up about it. And I was like, I got my best friend with me. And the bus was really nice. It was all souped up. They had nice chairs. They had a nice little bathroom in there. It was air-conditioned, and there wasn't a ton of people on it. And so you kind of could lay, you know, sprawl out a little bit. We each had like two seats for ourselves and that kind of thing. And we were just excited. I had my snack. I had my drink. I had my Snuggie. I had everything I needed 
for like a serious road trip. Uh, but as you can imagine, if you just put any mental energy behind it, it took us not very long to figure out that what we thought was going to be adventure really quickly turned into a nightmare. And, and a couple things we didn't know. One was, if you're on a Greyhound, I don't know if you know this, but you have to transfer about every two to four hours to a different bus. And the tricky part is that because you have to transfer every two to four hours, that means you can't sleep because you've got to pay attention. You've got to get off at the right time. It also means that because greyhounds are not necessarily always real punctual, that there's a good chance you're going to miss your bus and you're going to have to reroute and find a different way. And so sure enough, we had to jump buses. We also learned really quickly that not all greyhound buses are created equal. And so the first bus we got on was air-conditioned. It had a nice bathroom and there wasn't a lot of people on them. Most of them aren't like that. Okay, a bunch of them, no air conditioning, cramped, hardly confined to seat. The bathroom is terrible. And so the company is strange and the smells are weird. And every couple of hours we're transferring. And then, of course, into the trip, about two or three transfers over, our luggage is lost. And so that was great. Long story short, 55 hours <laughs> from Akron to Los Angeles. I'm telling you, there's stuff happens that you don't even think about. Like my feet started to swell because you don't lay down. You're sitting for 55 hours straight. It took us 55 hours. It was so terrible that on the way home, like I remember we were in, when we were in LA, we just, we were like, we were so dreading getting back on the bus. It was like looking forward to purgatory. We're like, we don't want to do that. It's going to be terrible. We got back on the bus and it was, we were so agitated so frustrated with the situation, so just like, you know, if you've ever been in a place where you just start to like get hot because it makes you mad, we got to that place where it was like that, that we started to just turn on each other and we started to bicker with each other and argue with each other and we'd be like, get, get your elbow out of my space, man, you know, and, and that, that's my bag, don't touch it and we just started getting at each other's throats and eventually it got so bad in the last 25 hours of the trip, we didn't even sit next to each other. We literally sat on different sides of the bus and when we finally got home back to Akron, we didn't talk to each other for like two weeks. And, and, and here's what I found. Maybe you guys have found, you guys have probably found this to be true in life as well. Did you ever learn that, that you don't really know how strong something is until it's tested? Did you ever realize that? I'm sure you have. You don't know how strong your friendships are until you spend 110 hours together on a Greyhound, stinky, cramped bus with that person, Right? You don't know how strong your marriage is until you hit a wall, until something happens, until there's, till there's um, some kind of tragedy or some kind of trial that happens. You don't know how strong something is until it's tested. And you know what? The Bible tells us that it's the exact same thing with your faith. Do you know that? The Bible says you don't know how strong your faith is until it's tested. You, you might say you believe in God and you trust God and you believe he's going to provide for you and follow through, but you don't really know that until you find yourself in a period of testing. And it's because of that that the Bible tells us that God is a God. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible explains very clearly that God is a God who allows us to be tested. In fact, God is a God who will oftentimes lead his people into places of testing. This is something that is congruent all throughout the Bible. So in the Old Testament, for example, the Bible says that God's people, the Israelites, were brought into the wilderness for 40 years. And the reason they were brought in the, into the wilderness for 40 years, the Bible tells us, was because God wanted to test their faith. He wanted to see what was in their hearts. He wanted to, to see what the quality of the relationship actually was because you don't know how strong something is until it's tested. And that doesn't just stay in the Old Testament. The Bible says in the New Testament, when Jesus has his disciples, that he will oftentimes do things and say things because he wants to test the faith of his disciples. 
And it's not just the Israelites, and it's not just the disciples, but for those of us in this room who follow Jesus, and I know not everyone in this room follows Jesus right now, but for those of us who do follow Jesus, the Bible explains to us that God also tests us. That's part of his will for us is that we're tested. And God doesn't test us because he likes to see us squirm or because he particularly likes to see us uncomfortable. The Bible tells us that the reason that he tests us is because he wants to develop some stuff in us. God wants to develop faith in us. God wants to develop character in us. That's why the book of James says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith is gonna develop perseverance. God's gonna develop some stuff in you through this testing. What I find so fascinating is the Bible tells us that God tests his people. But did you know that before Jesus Christ started his ministry on this earth, the Bible tells us that Jesus was tested as well. That before Jesus even began his ministry, that the Holy Spirit of God led Jesus to a place where he himself was tested. And that's the passage that I want to look at today. It's Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to see this take place. So why don't we just get into our Bibles. I want to walk through this passage. And then we'll talk about what it means to be saved by righteousness and how this passage has anything to do with that. So let's just start. So we'll start off in verse 1. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So let me just pause there for a minute. So here's what's going on. Matthew chapter 1 and 2 tells us about Jesus' birth. It explains to us the scenario in which that happened. It tells us how he grows up. Matthew chapter 3 explains to us how Jesus was baptized. And after Jesus was baptized, the Bible says that immediately after, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the desert. And why does the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness? Well, it tells us right here. You look again at verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, notice it was the Spirit who was leading him into this. Led him into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted by the devil. I think it's probably worth mentioning that word tempted that you see up there is also the same word we get tested. In fact, some of your translations say that. It says that the reason that Jesus was led into the wilderness was to be tested by Satan. And then the Bible explains to us in verse 2, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I thought that seems like the most obvious statement in the world, right? After fast, after not eating for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And you're like, yeah, I would think so, right? And wh- why is that there? Well, I think that, that while that might seem obvious, I think that's a really, really important detail. And here's why. I think the author is trying to let us know that Jesus is at a place of incredibly high need. Right? He's starving and incredibly low strength. Right? He is weak. He's probably depleted in his energy. This is, a, a, humanly speaking, this is an incredibly weak spot. And, and, and the reason I think that's important is because Um, I think the author wants us to know that it's in this place of human weakness, great human weakness and high need that Satan comes to tempt Jesus. And isn't it true, for those of us who follow Christ, isn't it true that the times that we find ourselves most susceptible to give in to temptation are we are in places of high need and low strength. So we find ourselves in a situation where, where we are depleted in our energy, when we're, did you guys ever hear halt be before? When we're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or bored. When we find ourselves in those circumstances, we are most inclined to give in to temptation. And Jesus is in a spot where he is pushing the thresholds of human weakness. He is right up against the limitation, right? And it's in that moment of high need and of low strength that the enemy, Satan, sees his opportunity. And he comes right to Jesus and he begins his testing. 
And it's going to show up in three tests. Let's look at the first one. Verse 3. The tempter, that's Satan, came to Jesus and he said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so this is the first test that Jesus has given. I call this one the test of bread. That's what I call this, the test of bread. And, and what's going on here? Well, here's what's going on. Jesus is starving 40 days, 40 nights, no food, high need, low weakness. Satan comes to him and he says, look, if you're the son of God, why don't you tell these stones to become bread? Because, you know, you got these magical abilities and stuff. Like later, Jesus is going to turn water into wine. So he's like, how about you just make these stones into bread, feed yourself. And, uh, and what is this all about? What's at the heart of this temptation, right? Is, is this telling us that it's wrong when you're hungry to eat food? Is that what the Bible is telling us? Well, geez, I hope not, right? Because, I mean, I, when I'm hungry, I eat. I go make myself a sandwich, you know, if I'm hungry. Not a sandwich, a sandwich, or I go to Rockney's or something. You know, if I'm, if I'm hungry, that's what I do. But, but is that what it's saying here? No, that's not what it's saying. Here's the heart of this temptation. The heart of this temptation is that what Satan is doing is he is calling into suspicion the, the trustworthiness and the provision of God. That's what he's doing. I want you to think about this for a minute. In Matthew chapter 3, the Bible says that, that Jesus is baptized, and upon being baptized, God the Father speaks from heaven, the Bible says. And this is what the God the Father says. He says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This is my son. And then... Jesus, led by the Spirit, goes in the wilderness, and he's led to not eat for 40 days and 40 nights. And so Satan comes to him, and he says, wait a minute, you're God's son, right? Jesus is probably like, yeah, I'm God's son. He's like, yeah, that's what God said. So that means that he's your father, and you're his child, right? That means he provides for you, and and that he takes care of your needs, right? Yeah. Why are you starving to death? Doesn't look like God's doing a real good job taking care of you, now does it? You see what Satan is doing here? He's trying to sow seeds of suspicion and he's trying to call into question the character of God. And he's saying, God is not really gonna meet your needs. And so you better take matters in your own hands and you better take care of yourself because God cannot be trusted and he won't take care of you. This is the temptation of bread. And you guys, there's no new temptation under the sun. Satan has been doing this from the very beginning. Some of you guys might remember when we looked at Genesis chapter one or Genesis chapter three, you see the same thing, right? Satan comes to Eve and what does he say? says, did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees? She says, no, he just said, I can't eat from this tree. And if I eat from this tree, then I'll die. And what does Satan say? You won't die. God just said that because he doesn't want you to be like him, right? And what's he doing? He's sowing seeds of suspicion into her thinking. He's doing the same thing here to Jesus, right? You have a need. God's not providing that need. That means that God can't be trusted. You need to take matters into your own hands and you need to take care of yourself. That's the temptation of bread. And I think for all of us in this room who follow Jesus, I know not everyone follows Jesus, we understand this temptation, don't we? Temptation of bread. I remember when I was in college between my junior and senior year, um, one of the things I had to do to graduate was I had to uh, finish an internship. And, uh, and so I did the internship. The only problem was that along with the internship, I was supposed to do some paperwork. And I was supposed to take that paperwork and I was supposed to turn it into my academic advisor. And so I did the internship. The only problem was I didn't actually do the paperwork. And it was completely negligence on my part. It's because I was lazy and I didn't do it. And I remember at the end of my internship, I started to get kind of scared of going back to school my senior year because I remember thinking, I don't know if this is going to count. I don't, and if this doesn't count, that means I can't graduate on time. 
So I'm not sure what this means exactly. And I was sort of afraid to face the music, but I knew I had to. And so uh, my senior year came and I, I went to school and I had to meet with my academic advisor. I found out pretty quickly that my academic advisor from my junior year over the course of the summer had taken a position in another place. And so he went to another school and so now I had a new academic advisor. And so I went and I sat down with my, this new academic advisor and, uh, and she started asking me about my internship. She's like, did you do your internship? And I said, yeah, I did my internship and this is what I did and this is where we went. And then she said, she said, well, you know, we don't have any paperwork on record from you. And I was about to explain to her that I didn't do it, but then she said this, before I could even say it, she said, um, she said, and I don't know if you turned it in, but if you did, it's possible that it might have gotten lost. And she said, because we have a new academic, you know, that your old academic advisor left, and she's like, and there's been a bunch of details that we've dropped in between, and if that happened, I'm sorry. All of a sudden, I was like faced with temptation, right? And I was like, now hold on a minute here. I'm like, if I could tell the truth and risk not graduating on time, right? Or I could just tell her it got lost. And then not only would I graduate on time, but I also wouldn't have to do any paperwork, you know? And so you know what I did? I looked her right in the eyes and I lied to her. And I said, uh, I said, yeah, it must've got lost. I don't know. And she said, and this is what she said. She said, I am so sorry. She said, I, that's our fault, that was our mistake, and don't worry about it. And I said, no big deal. <laughs> I, I remember I walked out of that room and I remember going down the hallway after meeting with her and for about 15 seconds, I remember feeling for just a second relieved. I was like, yes, oh man, now not only do I get to graduate on time, but I also don't have to do any paperwork and she apologized to me. I was like, I am scot-free, right? That lasted for about 15 seconds before all of a sudden I was like, oh no, what did I just do? And, and God, you know, through my conscience started speaking to me and I tried to quiet it, you know, but it wasn't working. You know, and I never have that. My conscience was like, now let me just get this straight here. Um, you want to graduate so that you can go to ministry, right? <laughs> It's like, shut up, conscious, you know? And it was like, and, and so you want to start your career off dishonestly. Is that how you want to do this? And I was like, shut up, you know? And I tried to push it off and I was, it's not a big deal. It's not a, I didn't technically lie, you know? I just, I just went along with her, you know? And um, so to my own disadvantage and, and to my own discredit, I just tell you that that lasted for about 24 hours. I wrestled with it before finally I was like, fine. I can't do this anymore. And I remember I went back to her office the next day and uh, I, I got in front of her, ter hard, such a hard conversation. You know, if you guys have done this, but it was so hard. I sat down and I said, listen, I just got to be straight with you. I was like, yesterday you asked me about my paperwork. And I was like, I lied to you. It's like, I never turned it in. And it was my own fault. And I was like, I don't really, I don't really know what the repercussions are. It's like, but I, I'm just willing to do whatever it takes to make it right. And I apologize to you. And so, so we had this great, she was great. And she, we talked it through and stuff. And then she said, I ended up, I could graduate on time. It was fine. I just had to redo the paperwork. At the end of our conversation though, she asked me something to this day. I still remember, I did not expect her to ask me. So it kind of took me off guard. And I'll never forget her either. Her name was Dr. Nancy King. Man, she good. And she sat me down. She looked at me and she said, listen, I, I want to ask you one thing. Just one thing. I was like, what is it? She said, why did you lie to me? 
And I, I was just not expecting that. And so I just kind of was like, I, I didn't know what to do, so I broke eye contact real quick, and I just kind of hemmed and hawed. I, you know, I don't know. I just, I just, there was not, I just lied. It just came out before I even wanted it to. It was like, you know, and, and I just said it, and I was afraid to, I wasn't going to graduate, and blah, blah, blah. And, and she listened to me, and then she looked at me, and she challenged me. And she said, she goes, listen, I don't think that's why you lied. She said, I think you need, what I want to challenge you to do, I want you to go away. I want you to seriously pray and seriously search your heart. And I want you to ask God why it is you think you did that. And I was like, okay. And I walked away, and you know what? I did think about it, and I did pray about it. You know, I've been thinking about it for over a decade now. And you know what? I, I've actually come to, a, I think, a conclusion by this point. And if I could sit down in front of Nancy Kane again, Dr. Nancy Kane, and I could answer that question again, here's how I'd answer it, I think, after searching my heart. I think I would say the reason I lied to you is because I gave into the temptation of bread. And you're like, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. I had a desire. I had a picture in my mind of what my future should look like. And that involved graduating on time and getting a job and doing these things. And when I realized that, that, that there was a, when I realized that there was a possibility that that was going to go away, I quickly violated the will of God in order to try to gain control and take it into my own hands to come up with my own solutions. Right? This, is, this is the temptation of the bread. Satan comes to Jesus. He says, look, you've been following God, right? Yeah, I've been following God. And, and, and this is where it's leading you? If you're going to follow God, it's going to lead to that conclusion. Take matters into your own hands. God can't be trusted. His way cannot be realized. See, I believed that if I would have told the truth, it would have led to a less desirable outcome. I believed that if I, would have, if I would have just lied and did it my own way, that that would be the better way for me to go. I was taking it in my own hands, right? You see, guys, this is something that I think anyone who's a follower of Jesus, we, we do this. We fall into the temptation of bread. We do this financially, don't we? For some of us, everything's going fine, but then all of a sudden we lose our job or we find ourselves in a financial tight spot. And all of a sudden, all of our security is shaken, everything. And now we find ourselves tempted to violate the will of God in order to take control of our future. And so this is why when we're in places like this that we're tempted to lie on our taxes or we're tempted to cook the books at work, that this is why, for some of us, we're not, we, we, we refuse to be generous the way that God wants us to be generous because we don't actually believe that if we follow God that he's going to provide for our needs. I take matters in my own hands. I need to do it my own way. And, I, and God's not going to provide for me, and so i got to do it myself. It's temptation of bread. Some of us do this in relationships, don't we? Some of you right now are in the dating phase. And, and my guess is if you're in the dating phase, you're in a place where you have some desires, right? You have some, you have some needs. And you're like, I want to be with someone. I'm, a, I'm lonely, and I would, like to, I would like to have a partner. That's not a bad thing, right? But what happens sometimes is we get so caught up in our loneliness that we start to believe that God has forgotten us. God must not care. God's not going to take care of me. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to violate the will of God. I'm going to go around the plan of God. I'm going to take it into my own hands, and I'm going to control my own destiny. And so what we do is we end up going about dating in a way that we know that doesn't honor God. We start dating someone that we know is not the right person, and we start to disobey what we know God wants for us because we want to take it into our own hands. It's temptation of bread. Right? And we do this in our marriages, don't we? You start to get... You start to get in a place in your relationship where you look at your spouse and you say, man, that, they're not meeting my needs anymore. And when we were first married, I had these needs. They were being, and they're not getting met anymore. 
And so rather than trusting God, that he knows my needs, he knows my desires, and that he alone is the one who satisfies me, I'm going to violate God's will and I'm going to go satisfy him myself. It's a temptation of bread. We do this with justice, don't we? You know, the Bible tells us that for those of us who follow Jesus, not everyone follows Christ, I know, but for those of us who do, that when someone sins against us or they hurt us or they treat us poorly, the Bible explains to us that what our reaction should be is that we should forgive them rather than be bitter towards them, that we should not seek vengeance and we should entrust justice to God, which means we look at God and say, God, you know what happened and I trust you. I trust you that you're gonna, you're gonna treat this, this situation with fairness and with justice. But oftentimes we don't believe God's gonna do that. So we take it in our own hands and we seek vengeance, we retaliate, we're full of bitterness and resentment. And this is the temptation of bread. It's saying, I don't actually think God's gonna provide for me. I don't actually think that God is gonna be the one who's gonna provide my needs. And so I'm gonna do it myself. So Satan comes to Jesus and he says, look, you're hungry. God ain't coming through. Why don't you feed yourself? The temptation of bread. And Jesus, I love it. Jesus looks at Satan. His response is just stellar. Check this out. His response again, verse four, Jesus answered, it is written, which by the way, is an awesome way to start any sentence. Bible says, how about that? That's pretty good. Not, I think, or um, I heard it said, or Dr. Phil once said, it is written, right? He says, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see what Jesus does there? He quotes scripture, and he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter eight. And he says to, to Satan, no, 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 Satan, because the Bible says that man does not live on bread alone, that bread isn't the thing that I put my hope in. It's the God who provides the bread that I put my hope in. And so I will not violate the will of God in order to satisfy my own appetites. Instead, I'm gonna trust God that he's gonna provide to me what I need when I need it. And he says, get out of here, Satan. And the Bible says that Jesus passes the first test with flying colors, the temptation of bread. Well, after that, we don't know how much time passes, but the Bible tells us that Satan comes back again. This time he comes with the second temptation. Let's check this out, starting in verse five. Then the devil took Jesus into the holy city and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. But Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. All right, so this is the second temptation. I call this one the temptation of bribe. That's what I call this. The first one is the temptation of bread. This is the temptation of bribe, all right? And here's what I mean by that when I say bribe. Satan comes to Jesus a second time and he begins his attack, begins his test. And it's almost as if Satan is saying, all right, Jesus, uh, you trust the word of God, you say. And, and, and you quote the Bible, right? Well, all right, two can play that game. And I can quote the Bible too. And so Satan comes to Jesus and he says, let's go to the top of the, let's go to the very pinnacle, the top of the roof of the temple. And he says, if you're the son of God, I want you to throw yourself off, do a swan dive off of the top of this roof. And he's like, because the Bible says, because the Bible says in Psalm 91, that God will protect his servant and that he will, he will come to the rescue of those who put their faith in him, right? Now, this is tricky. What Satan is doing here is he is quoting from scripture. He's quoting from Psalm 91 but he is totally misapplying this passage. Uh, Psalm 91 is a beautiful explanation of how God provides for his people and how he protects his people. But what Psalm 91 doesn't say is that we should deliberately put God to the test by jumping off of roofs to do that. It doesn't say that, right? 
So Satan misapplies it, and Jesus comes right back at him, and he says, wait a minute, Satan, it's also written. It's like, don't just look at one verse, man. You've got to look at the whole Bible. It's like, it's also written, and he quotes from, um, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, that you shouldn't put the Lord your God to the test. Now, that begs a good question, right? What does it mean to put the Lord your God to the test? Well, I think that really a great answer to that question is found when you look at Jesus's, um, what, the, the scripture that Jesus has quoted here. The scripture that Jesus quotes is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 16. And this is what Deuteronomy 6, 16 says. It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. That brings up another great question. What happened at Massa? What went down there, right? And I'll just fill you in a little bit. Cliff Notes version. If you want to check it out, you can just write this down in your notes. Exodus 17 talks about what happened in Massa. Here's what happened in Massa. The Israelites were being tested by God for 40 years in the wilderness. And the Bible says that they were thirsty. And so you know what they did? They went to Moses and they said, if God is really with us, then that means he's going to give us water now. And they demanded that God perform in such a way that he would perform a miracle and provide for their needs. And Moses said, don't do that. Don't put God to the test. Don't do that. Don't put conditions on God. What they were essentially saying is, if God loves us, that means he's going to act the way we want him to, when we want him to, how we want him to. And that's what it means to put the Lord your God to the test. It's putting conditions on my relationship with God. God, I'll follow you, but only if you do X, Y, and Z. Only if you perform the way I want you to, how I want you to, when I want you to. And I think for those of us, again, who follow Christ in this room, I think we understand that. We probably have been tempted this way, right? We find ourselves sometimes wanting to put conditions on our relationship with God. God, I'll serve you. I'll be faithful to you. But only if you provide and protect my family the way I think and think you should and the way I want you to. And if you don't do that, then I'm walking, man. I'm done with you, right? God, I'll, I'll, I'll trust you. But you better save my marriage, because if you don't save my marriage, I don't know if I can trust you. I'm out of here, right? We put conditions on it. That's called putting the Lord your God to the test. We can easily do what Satan's done here, which is take one verse out of Scripture, pull it out of context, and then use it as a bargaining chip to try to get God to do what we want. This happens a lot, right? And so, a guy, for example, a guy can take a verse, like in, in the book of Hebrews, that says, uh, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And a guy can take that and say, all right, I don't have a job, and uh, my, my bills are all overdue. And so you know what? I'm just going to take this verse. I'm just going to trust God. I got faith. God's going to provide for me. And so I'm just going to sit on my couch, watch American Ninja Warrior reruns, and just have faith that God's going to provide for me. And you're like, what are you doing? I'm just waiting for God to show up, waiting for God to provide. You're like, well, hold on a minute. The Bible says that we should live on faith. The Bible says it's impossible to please God without faith. But the Bible also says that if you don't work, you don't eat. And so, and so you can't put the Lord your God to the test, right? Or some people, will, there's, there's a verse in the Old Testament that says, if you delight in God, then he will give you the desires of your heart. And some people will take that verse. I got a verse now. That means that, look, God, I got a verse. That means that if I delight in you, you got to give me what I want, right? And so if I just put my hope in you, then that means you know that house I want. You know that car I want. You know that thing I want. I, this is my verse. This is my past, you know, but... But once again, you're pulling it out of context. You're isolating it without the full counsel of Scripture. And we're tempted to do this. And so Satan comes to Jesus and he says to him, he's like, look, you trust God, right? You believe in God. You believe in the word. All right, test it. Jump off this cliff. If God really loves you, then he will save you. So this is bribery is what this is. So Jesus, again, comes back at him. And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he says, no, Satan, 
Bible said, also says that you shouldn't put the Lord your God to the test. That's not how faith works, Satan. Faith isn't, God, if you really, if I, I'll believe in you if you do X, Y, and Z. Faith is, God, I trust you regardless of what I think, regardless of what I want and how I want it. I'm going to believe in you and I'm going to put my faith in you. And Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. And Jesus passes the second temptation with flying colors. And again, we don't know how much time elapses, but go to the third temptation. The third and last temptation we're going to see here in verse 8. I call this one the temptation to bow. So you guys see what I did there? The temptation of bread, the temptation of bribe, the temptation to bow. It's three Bs. I'm not even Baptist, so that's pretty good, right? And so temptation to bow. Here we have it, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said, all of this I will give to you if you bow down and you worship me. So Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is the temptation to bow. And what's at the heart of this temptation? What's going on here? Well, again, Satan is on number three, the third test. I think that at this point, Satan understands that it isn't working. And so by the third one, it's just like one last ditch effort. And he gets right to the, he just throws all of his chips on the table. He's like, here's the bottom line, Jesus, worship me. Worship me and I'll give you everything. I'll give you it all. And, and what's going on here? Well, here, here's what's going on. I think that both Jesus and Satan were very well aware that Jesus Christ was the son of God. And because he's the son of God, that means that he was the one who had the rights that all authority in heaven and on earth would be given to him. I think they knew that. And I think that Jesus also knew that the path that God had designed for him, that God wanted him to take, it took, it involved the cross, it involved suffering, it involved death, and it involved resurrection. It was not an easy path. And I think Satan, in a last-ditch effort, said, look, if you just bow down and you worship me, then we'll just skip to the end, okay? You can have all that stuff without the cross, without suffering, without serving and dying for these people. There's an easier way to get there. And this is the temptation of bowing because you guys know as well as I do, Satan, this was a total lie. He had no ability to follow through with this promise that he was making. He's the father of lies, right? But that's exactly what the temptation to bow is. The temptation to bow is saying, um, looking to something else that promises you that it's gonna give you what only God can give you. And you bow to it and put your hope in it, believing that it's gonna give to you what only God can give to you, right? And again, like I said, this is a temptation that many of us face. We have a temptation, many of us do, to look at something else besides God, to bow our lives to that thing because we believe that that thing is gonna give us fulfillment and joy, which by the way are two things that only God can bring. This can happen in a lot of different ways. For some of us, it's success, right? And so we look to success and we think, man, if I could just climb to the top of that ladder, if I could just be the best in my field, that then I would be happy then I'd be worth something, then I'd be fulfilled, then I would be satisfied, right? Then I would find joy if I just had that. And so what we do is we bow to it and everything in our life, our family, our kids, bends to that one thing. Everything else revolves around that, right? It could be beauty. For some of you, you're like, if I could just look a certain way and if I could just appear a certain way and come across a certain way, then I'd be worth something. Then I'd be happy, I'd be fulfilled. Then I, then I would find joy. And everything in your life then begins to bend around that goal, begins to revolve around that thing. This is the temptation to bow. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. 
Now, I know for some of us, when we hear idolatry, we tend to think, oh, that's something that happened a long time ago. Ancient people worshiping weird stuff. But it's not. It happens all the time. It's any time you look at something besides God to give you what only God can give you. Any time you look at something for ultimate fulfillment and ultimate joy, when God alone is the only one who can provide those things for you. And so Jesus sees right through Satan's lie. And he looks at him, and I love his response on this one. He says, away from me, Satan. He's like, get out of here, dude. He's like, the Bible says that you, can all, you should only worship God alone. He's like, that's the first commandment. You think you're gonna trip me up on number one? Get out of here. And the Bible says that after that, Satan leaves. And I want you to look at what's happening in verse 11, the very end of this. It says, then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. I don't know why I think that's so cool, but I get this cool picture in my mind that Jesus is kind of in the ring with Satan. They go three rounds and Jesus just destroys him. And then I imagine Jesus like, you know how like in a boxing match, how they got like the stool in the corner. I imagine Jesus like just sits in the stool in the corner and the Bible says the angels come and attend him. And so I used to imagine the angels all around like, yeah, he did it. You know, they're like giving him water and giving him bread and they're like got the towel like rubbing his shoulders. I don't know if that's how it happened, but I, th- I think so. So... So Jesus is there and he gets his, the angels attend to him in this amazing way. This is an amazing passage that we have of Jesus fighting temptation. Now some of you guys are like, okay, that's, that's really neat. That's a neat passage you got there. Um, I don't know what that has to do with being saved by righteousness. What does that have to do with that? And, and let me just try to explain this because I believe that this whole passage is about how you and I are saved by righteousness. Um, Here's what I mean. I think sometimes we make a mistake. We take a passage like this and we want to make it about ourselves. That's what we want to do. We want to take a passage like this and we want to say, oh man, look at how Jesus fought temptation. That means that this is how we should fight temptation. That's the point, right? That that Jesus, when he was tempted, he quoted scripture. That means you and I, when we're tempted, we should quote scripture too, just like Jesus did. That's what the point of the passage is, right? And let me ask you a question. When you're tempted, is it wrong to quote scripture? Man, no way, right? That is a great idea. That's a biblical idea. Second Corinthians chapter 10 tells us to do that. And I think that's a secondary application of this passage. But that's not what this passage is about. We always want to make it about us, but that's not what this passage is about. And you're like, well, then what is this passage about? What's the meaning of this passage? Let me explain it this way. In the Old Testament, the Bible said that the Israelites were God's chosen people, okay? The Bible says that they were in Egyptian captivity, and God delivered them out of Egypt. They passed through the Red Sea and immediately were led into 40 years in the wilderness. Now, why were they led in the wilderness for 40 years? The Bible tells us, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it spells it out for us. Look at Deuteronomy 8.2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness for 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. Why did God lead his people into the wilderness for 40 years? Because you don't know how strong something is until you test it. And so he said, I'm going to test them. I'm going to put them out there to see what's in their heart. I want to see if they're righteous, if their faith is strong. And you know what the Bible explains? The Bible says that they went in the wilderness for 40 years and they failed miserably. And they failed continually. That's what the whole book of Exodus and the whole book of Numbers is about. They fail and they fail and they fail and they fail and they fail. And God tests them again and they fail. And it just repeats cycle after cycle. Then you get to Matthew, and and the author of Matthew tells us 
in Matthew chapter 2, that Jesus Christ is also led out of Egypt. Jesus Christ is also passing through the waters. He's baptized in Matthew chapter 3. And immediately after he passes through the waters, the Bible says that he's led for 40 days. Does this sound familiar? In the wilderness. Why? To be tested. That's what the Bible says. There's too many parallels for this to be a coincidence, right? And do you notice that when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, do you notice he quotes from the Bible? But not just from anywhere. He quotes from one section of Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 6 to Deuteronomy chapter 8. What's happening in Deuteronomy chapter 6 to Deuteronomy chapter 8? Well, I'll tell you what's happening. Deuteronomy 6 to 8 is a speech that Moses is giving to the Israelites before he dies. And you know what he's saying in that speech? He's reviewing the past 40 years of failure. He says, you guys, God has tested you. He tested you with bread, and you failed. He tested you with bribe, and you failed. And then he tested you with bowing, and you failed. You failed, you failed, you failed. And Moses says, you guys, listen, I'll tell you what, here's the deal. If from this point forward you can live a righteous life, and and you don't fail in the way that you did in the past, it's going to go good for you. God's going to protect you. He's going to provide for you. But if you continue to fail, it's not going to go very well. And guess what the rest of the Old Testament's about? How God's people fail. And they fail. And they fail. You read the book of Judges, it's just a downward spiral of failure all the way through. And it's not until you get to Matthew chapter 4 that you see that Jesus Christ was tempted in the exact same ways that Israel was, but there was one major difference. And it was this that where the Israelites failed, Jesus succeeded. You guys want to know what the main point of this passage is? I'll tell you what it is. The main point of this passage is not, if you want to be righteous, you need to try to be more like Jesus. That is not the point of Christianity, and that is not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is this. Jesus alone is righteous. He is the only one who has passed this test the only one who has done this. The Bible says there is no one righteous, not one. There was only one who came and did what we couldn't do for ourselves, who passed the test because you only know how strong something is after it's been tested and Jesus was tested and he was found to be faithful and he was found to be righteous. I guess at the beginning of this sermon, I said that we've been, we are saved by righteousness. And here's what I mean by that. We're saved by righteousness, yes. It's just not ours. It's not our righteousness, It's his righteousness. Christ lived a perfect life and he died a sacrificial death for our sake, in our place. And he did this for us is what the Bible says. And so the point isn't, man, just try harder to be more like Jesus. The point is, no, trust Jesus. He's the only one who's worth your faith. He's the only one who's worth worshiping because he alone is qualified to be our savior. No one has done what Jesus has done. He's the only one who's worth your faith. And so we're saved by righteousness, but it's Christ's righteousness. It's his perfection. He passed the test. This is why the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, um, or I'm sorry, in Philippians chapter three, says it this way. I love how he says it. He says, if someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, he says, I have even more. And in this passage, he goes on then to describe how he has all these achievements. He's like, I have the pedigree. 
I did all these great, these great things, but then look what the Apostle Paul says in verse 8. He says, I now consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom sake I have lost all things. I consider everything else, all of my achievements, all of my advancement, I count them garbage that I might gain Christ to be found in him. Look at this not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That is to say, not having a righteousness that comes from doing good things, but instead a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. See what Paul's saying here. He's saying, listen, my only hope is that I'm saved by righteousness, but it's not mine. And so that means that I'm to put my faith in Christ, to trust Christ, to look to Christ is the only one who's worthy to be my savior. So the Bible tells us that we're saved by righteousness, but the righteousness that we're saved by is Christ's. It's only when we place our faith in him, the one who could do what we couldn't do for ourselves, that we find victory because he himself is our victory. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I just want to say thank you so much for your words to us this morning. God, it's amazing to me to think about the fact that um, that you have done for us what what we could not do for ourselves, what we have failed to do. You are a more true and a more perfect Israel. Lord, where where we have failed you, you have succeeded. And God, I believe that a lot of times um, we want to make Christianity about what what we believe or how we behave. And while it's true that following you involves belief and it involves behavior, that's not what it's about. Christianity... It's not about what we believe or how we behave. It's about who we trust and who we follow. So Father, I pray for the person today who's never put their faith in you. I pray that this morning they would find you faithful. They would find you righteous. They would find you worthy because honestly, you're the only one. You're the only one who is qualified to be our savior. You're the only one who's lived a righteous life. And now you told us that when we put our faith in you, that you're gonna cover us with your righteousness. God, for those of us who do follow you, I pray, God, that we would just worship you, that we would worship you and and, and adore you and and that our heart would cry out with thankfulness because because you have done for us what we can't do for ourselves. So Lord, I pray that you would give us strength by your spirit. Jesus, when we're tempted, I pray you'd help us because you're the only one who ever did this and you were victorious for us. And so we turn to you and ask you to be our help. The Bible says that you were tempted in every way just as we were, but you didn't sin. And so I pray that not only will we follow your example, but even more than that, we put our hope in you. Father, I pray that rather than trying to earn our, our, our approval before you, we would realize that you've already done this for us. And instead, we put our hope in you, God. There's nothing else that's worth our faith. Nothing else. I could put my faith in myself, but I can't even meet my own expectations. I could put my faith in another person, but nobody's perfect. But Jesus, you were tested and you were found strong. And Jesus, you were proven to be righteous. And so you alone are worth our faith. So we declare it and we place it in you and we pray it in your name.